Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, good day. It is absolutely fantastic to be with you. Every church needs an Australian. If you're struggling with the uh, accent, the language, uh, we will work on subtitles for you. Uh, but it's, it's been great to be uh, here in Cape Town for eight years. And we're normally right now at the Tableview Congregation. That's our home church. And uh, uh, it is an honour, Gabe, to be invited. Uh, whoever gets entrusted with opening God's Word, you understand that's a, a heavy and weighty responsibility. Um, and so we deeply appreciate the trust you show in our guys. The, my bride of 44 years is sitting there, the beautiful Karen. Whoa. And the reason you need Aussies um, is that uh, we make things happen. So you, you do understand that all Australians are descended from convicts. You've, you know that, don't you? Okay, so that's my heritage. Every year when we have Heritage Day, I'm thinking, yep, my ancestors just stole lots of things. So if you give an Aussie like a cricket ball and a bit of sandpaper, like, we, we make things happen. So thank you for welcoming us. Whenever I open God's word, I'm expecting to hear God speak and I'm expecting to be transformed by him so that my life is changed. So could, could I pray, pray now that that's exactly what God does as we open his word? Oh, Father God, thank you. Thank you that you speak to us in your word. Thank you that we meet with you in your word. And I pray that today as we dive into your scriptures that not only will be um, comforted by you, but we will be challenged and stretched by you so that we walk out of here different from what we were when we walked in. Our Father God, keep changing us to become more and more like your son Jesus. Amen. Can you remember the first time you fell in love? Oh, oh, testimony. Oh, there we are. <laughs> Thank you. Testimony meeting will be later on tonight. Um, but you just remember the wonder of that moment, the, the sweet, tender romance. And, you know, you know I, I'm just a hopeless romantic. Karen said that to me once. Well, she actually used the word hopeless. I remember that bit. Um, <laughs> But you understand the dating, the courting, the, you know, the special, the, the, the beating of the heartbeat, the, the first love. And then, of course, it leads to a marriage, which is just beautiful. And then you settle into married life. And sometimes that spark of that first romance, it just sort of gets left aside a little bit because there's like screaming children and household chores and household chores that you have to do because of your gender. Um, and there's just more and more to do and less time to do it in. And if you're not careful, you lose that original spark, that original relationship. You start to take each other for granted and you just end up being comfortable. Now, I'm wondering if it's possible that your life with Jesus can do something like that. 
Like if you can remember the day you said yes to Jesus, like there were sparks flying, heaven opened, the gospel, sins were forgiven. I remember, it, to me, it felt like I got off a spiritual treadmill and I actually started running for the first time. And there was a, the death of Jesus meant so much to me and I, my world was changed. And as you go on as a Christian, like sometimes it gets a bit hard to live as a Christian and you start to maybe forget about the wonder of the death of Jesus and your Christian life just shrivels just a little bit. Now, when that happens, that normally leads to you looking for some other experience just to give you a booster shot of Christianity. And I've been a Christian now for 51 years. I think I can remember all these little booster shots that everybody ran after, like the early 70s, the Jesus revolution. Come on. <laughs> Hi to the baby boomers. Uh, my wife and I both came to Jesus through the Jesus revolution in the very early 70s. The, the hippies for Jesus, like that was us. And that was great. But some people try and recreate it. They're trying to chase it. I remember when the Toronto blessings swept through the country. Uh, even last year, the Asbury outpouring in that university in the United States, wonderful work of God, but everyone started chasing it to try and get a little bit of a booster shot. And, and we can sometimes just keep looking for more and more experiences to have. What's the latest Christian book? Oh, there's an overseas preacher in town. I must go there. What's the latest music that's been dropped by that church that has all the music I love? I want another experience. Oh, give me a Christian stadium experience. I want to have an experience in a stadium. And we forget about the cross that actually brought us there. Can I suggest to you what I think our problem is with the cross of Jesus? Like, we've heard the story so many times. Like the first time you heard that Jesus died for your sins, you might well still have been in your mother's womb. Like, and you heard it as a little kid and you sang songs about it and you did pictures about it and there were Sunday school lessons and you read books about it, you come to church and we preach about it. You know the story. You know how it starts. You know how it develops. You know how it finishes. Spoiler alert, Jesus dies. Like nothing surprises you about it and it just fades into the background and it just becomes well I guess I guess it was kind of nice of Jesus to die for me like yeah that's pretty pretty cool and it's it's a great sign that um, I guess it shows that that Jesus loves me now it does show that Jesus loves you in fact have you seen this logo yes you see that Cross equals love. I think that's one of the most brilliant logos that's come out like in the last 30 years. It is so simple. It is so deep. Even unbelievers get it. And it's so simple, I can draw it. <laughs> Cross equals love. I love it. But you've worked out the cross is a whole lot more than just love. And is it okay to suggest to you that Dying for somebody doesn't necessarily show that you love them. Can I say that again slowly? Dying for somebody doesn't necessarily show that you love them. 
there's a young man and a young lady and they're kind of close and they're up on the top of Table Mountain taking in the majesty of the view right on the edge of the cliff and he says to her I love you so much indeed I can't imagine ever living without you and to show you how much I love you I'm going to die for you and he races to the edge of the cliff and throws himself and his body is splattered across three postcode areas <laughs> do you think that young lady will feel loved she will need therapy for the rest of her life Dying for someone doesn't necessarily show that you love them. Let's imagine a second story. This one's a little bit nicer. <laughs> young man, young lady, arm in arm, going for a walk and they're crossing the railroad tracks. And she runs ahead, tiddly-dee, um, and trips on one of the rails and falls and hits her head on the other rail and is knocked out. The boyfriend behind sees the high-speed express train coming. Hang on, this is South Africa, isn't it? <laughs> he sees the slow-moving, vandalised people hanging out the doors train arriving. And in that split second, he runs forward, flies and leaps and pushes her body clear of the train. But his own body is across the tracks and he dies in the act of saving her. Do you understand? It's not just that Jesus died for you that shows he loves you. It's what he achieves by dying for you that shows that he loves you. When Paul writes a letter to the Christians at a place called Colossae, which is a reasonably insignificant little Roman town, um, They've, they'd come out of paganism like they weren't Jews. They, they were Gentiles living in debauchery and sin and any depravity you can imagine, they did it. And when God sends his messenger with the message of Jesus' death and his forgiveness, they are transformed, they're revolutionized. They get eternal life and they love it. But as time goes on, they're just almost forgetting about the majesty of the cross, and they're looking for another spiritual experience. Now, there's a group of Jews who've become Christians who have moved out there, and some of them are saying, oh, you Gentiles, you've missed out on all the stuff the Jews have. So, you know, Jesus is great, but as well as Jesus' death, if you underwent the Jewish ceremonies as well, you know, kept the health laws, kept the food laws, the ritual cleansing, and for the men, the unkindest cut of all, <laughs> circumcision... Oh, I can see some of you guys just wincing at the mention of that name. Not for medical reasons, not for heritage reasons. You're not going up to Esutwini for the Umqueta. Call us this here. Kunjani. Ah, Belilena. In the Yavuyu Okobona. There we But circumcision was like a religious, a religious thing. 
to complete the work that Jesus did. The sign that you belong to God's people is in the being cut off from your sin. And they're looking to chase something extra. And Paul writes to them to show them that that is not needed at all. Because they had spiritual FOMO. Fear of missing out. They were thinking, oh, if there's an experience I'm meant to have, I don't want to miss it. And I don't know about you, but you might have felt that in your Christian life. You see other churches doing things and you think, gee, our church doesn't do that. Or you meet another Christian who seems to have some ability or some relationship or something that you don't have. And you thinking, Christianity, I want it all. I want absolutely everything. Now, if that describes you, you're in for a treat this evening. Because when Paul writes to the Christians at Colossae, he's almost saying, do you want it all? Well, guess what? Number one, Jesus has already done it all for you. And number two, Jesus has already given it all to you. So, would you like to look into the Scriptures and discover how you can have the riches that simply come from Jesus' death. And he's going to point out three barriers. Three barriers that could stop you experiencing everything Jesus has done. And three barriers that he smashed when he died on the cross. Come on, is this worth looking at? Okay, let's do it. Bibles at the, the, the handy, if you've got your good old paper Bible like Jesus used... Or if you've got your Bible on your electronic device with 27 versions and commentary underneath, um, we're just going to look at three verses. Colossians chapter 2, and we're just going to start at verse 13. And I want to show you the three things that Jesus achieves. And number one, he smashes all my sins. Colossians 2, uh, 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Now, did you pick those words, you were dead in your sins? And some of you are thinking, oh, like, that was them, but like, I was, I was never dead in my sins. Like, I was a good person before I became a Christian. Law-abiding, honest, you know, loving, caring. Surely that couldn't be me. And the Bible is saying, yes, spiritually dead. And you might be thinking, but even before I was a Christian, I did lots of good things. Well, can I call as a witness um, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 6, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That is the best thing I could do compared with God's standard of righteousness, perfection and holiness is simply like a filthy rag. And God says, you were spiritually dead. Now, can you imagine the wonder when Jesus dies for you and every single sin is wiped away. The slate is wiped clean and you are forgiven from absolutely 
everything, even the sins that you don't know that you committed, Jesus forgives them. He takes the weight and the penalty and the price of your sins and every single one of them. Come on, we were dead, we were blind, we were lost, but in Christ's death, he brought us to life. And if nobody has ever shared the good news of Jesus with you, if that moment where somebody got alongside you and explained to you what Jesus had done, if that had never happened, you would still be dead in your sins and facing an eternity without Jesus. But he steps in and says, I am going to change all that. Colossians 2.13 again. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Come on, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus did not come to make good people better. Jesus did not come to make poor people rich. Jesus did not come to make struggling people successful. Jesus didn't come to make insecure people confident. Jesus came to bring dead people to life. And the moment you said yes to Jesus, that's what his death did for you. Come on. If you are in Christ this evening, that is the miracle of the ages. It has already happened and it will rule you for the rest of your life. Is that cool? There's the first barrier. Jesus smashes all my sins. Number two. Jesus smashes all my condemnation. Can I go back to verse 13? I want to get to verse 14, but I only use 13 to lead us in. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Verse 14, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was nailed against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, do you understand in biblical times that when a criminal was executed, say, on a cross, they would nail to the cross, number one, the name of the criminal, and number two, the charge that they had been found guilty of. Just, that's the way they did it. So, think of Jesus. The Romans actually nailed a sign to the top of his cross. Top of your heads, what did it say? Jesus of Nazareth, that was his name. Crime. The king of the Jews. Now, the Jews weren't very happy with that one. The Pharisees wanted to say, oh no, he claimed to be the king of the Jews, but the Romans just went, his crime, being king of the Jews. Paul's now using the same language of us and talking about the charge sheet that is there against us. Whatever charges that's from God that would stand against you, the accusations before God that could condemn you, the indictment that would seal your guilt before God forever, the evidence that would sentence you to eternal death, that document which contains every one of your sins was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Every one of God's holy and perfect laws in the Old Testament, all 613 of them, good laws, holy laws, righteous laws, given by God to his people so that by obeying them they would find life, 
Here's the problem. They told you God's standards but did not give you the power to obey them. So the very laws in the Old Testament that were meant to bring you life, when you disobey them, they bring death. And every one of those laws stands accusing every one of us that we have disobeyed God. Imagine if we had a computer printout of every sin you'd ever committed in your lifetime. Just, boy, some of us would need a lot of paper. And if you're thinking, I don't sin that much, okay, let's just check this one. Let's imagine I'm a really, really good person and I only sin like three little sins a day. Like one time I didn't tell the whole truth, I had um, one unkind word to someone and one impure thought. Do you agree that if that's the only thing I did wrong in 24 hours, I'd probably be a pretty good person? Yeah, I think so too, thank you. (laughs) Here's the problem, three sins a day means over a thousand sins a year. I'm now 70. 70,000 sins accusing me. Gabe, how old are you? 35. 35,000 sins accusing you. You're only half as sinful as I am. Now imagine, let's pick on Gabe for a moment, it'll be fun. Imagine you have a traffic offence and you're in traffic court and the magistrate says, does this man have any previous traffic offences? And the prosecutor says, he has 35,000 previous traffic offences. Do you understand? We've got no chance whatsoever. That document that details every one of your sins was nailed to the cross of Christ and dealt with and done away with and no longer has any accusation against you. That is, Jesus does not just cancel your debt, he cancels the document that your debt was written on. And that all happened when Jesus died. When the writer to the Hebrews, now talking Hebrews, there's your clue, Jewish Christians, who understood the Old Testament, picking up on the same theme, he wanted to remind them of what the prophet Jeremiah said to them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. God says, This is the covenant I will make with them after this time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws where? In their hearts. And where? I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Can I say that verse one more time? But every time it says them or their, I'm going to change it to you and your. Because I want you to see this as a covenantal promise from God, no matter what you have done in your life. This is the covenant, says God, that I will make with you after that time. I will put my laws on your heart. I will write them on your mind. Your sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. God chooses to wipe from his memory all those 35,000 sins that Gabe has committed so far. Wiped from his memory. God not only removed your debt in the cross, but he destroyed the document that that death was written on. That's 
the second barrier. Firstly, Jesus smashes every one of my sins. Number two, Jesus smashes every one, all my condemnation. And number three, Jesus smashes all my enemies. I want to look at what Jesus did to Satan on that cross. Just in one verse. Firstly, he disarms the devil. Verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Can I focus on that first phrase? Having disarmed the powers and authorities. When the Bible talks about powers and authorities, it's usually talking about the evil powers and authorities. It's talking about Satan and his demons and all those who would try and drag God's people down away from him. What did Jesus do with them at the cross? He disarmed the powers and authorities. That is, every power that the devil could have over you, every weapon that the devil could form against you, every weapon that the devil possesses, Jesus disarms him. He robs him of his arsenal. He takes away any weapon that could be used to drag you away from your loving father. He, he gives no power. He takes away the power of the weapon of doubt that Satan will use against you. He takes away the weapon of accusation which Satan is using against you all the time. He takes away the weapon of condemnation. He takes away the weapon of death which has no more sting because it's been disarmed. Every one of those weapons, Jesus grabs them, smashes them, conquers them, has victory over them, defeats them, destroys them and triumphs over them. The devil's got nothing on you. Absolutely nothing. The Bible says he's roaming around like a lion. Can I tell you, he's roaming around like a toothless and pawless. Is that a word? He has no teeth and no paws. Because Jesus has disarmed him. And he'll be growling. And he will try and intimidate you. And he'll try and scare you into going away from Jesus. But Jesus has him on a rein and can pull him in at every moment. He disarms the devil so that he has no power left over you who belong to Jesus. Second one, he humiliates the devil in his victory parade. <laughs> this one is real fun. Verse 15 again. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, you've got to understand how armies went to war in those days. Here's what would happen. The king of your country takes your army and go and invades the king of the country next door to you and wins. So, to celebrate the victory, there would be a huge victory parade down the main street of your capital city and leading it would be your king and all his generals and all the army, but behind them, chained up, roped up in humiliation, would be the defeated king, with chains wrapped around him, the defeated generals, the defeated army, and if they could, the defeated citizens of the kingdom that you had just won the victory on. And the crowd would be cheering and just saying how wonderful we are because all those captives were chained up in the, your king's victory procession. Imagine that King Khaleesi 
King Khaleesi, in a mighty World Cup triumph, defeats the forces of evil and overcomes the All Blacks and all their followers. Now, upon King Khaleesi's return, I want you to imagine there's a big street parade here in Cape Town. It comes down Darling Street, ends up at the Grand Parade and finishes in front of City Hall. And we're all there cheering, you know, Springbok stuff. We see the, the Springboks leading the victory procession. We see all their managers and officials and coaches behind them in triumph and then in chains. We see the entire All Blacks team, heads hung in humiliation, and then all their coaching staff, and then if we can, any New Zealanders that we can find. <laughs> you understand that picture. This is what Paul is saying in this letter. When King Jesus conquered the devil and all his demons on the cross, he held a spiritual victory parade where he paraded his victory to those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And tied up in that victory parade was the devil and all his demons and all those who rejected Jesus and were following Satan. Humiliated in a victory parade. So here's, here's your theology question for this evening. The final showdown between God and his forces and the devil and his forces. The ultimate deciding victory where there is one irrevocable winner and one irrevocable loser. The deciding match between God and Satan for a one-time, forever-standing victory. That moment. Is it still to come? Or has it happened already? Your admission to the theological college will depend on your result. Okay, there are still some things to be played out, but I want to say that victory has happened. The winner is already decided. There is no contest anymore. The devil has been disarmed. The devil has been humiliated. He is a spent force and he's simply trying to drag down as many people he can in his death throes. Can, can you see there is, it is no small thing that Jesus died for you? Because on that day, on that cross... Jesus splits the forces of the universe in two. On that day, on that cross, Jesus splits all of human history in two. On that day, on that cross, Jesus splits every nation in two. On that day, on that cross, Jesus splits eternity in two. And on that day, on that cross, Jesus splits your life in two and brings you to a point where you must make a decision as to whose side you'll be on, not just for the next week, but for the rest of eternity. At the end of our service, we're going to have some people at the front ready to pray with you, some men and women from our leadership team, and you can come and we'll help you pray about anything. But if you've worked out, you've never made that decision to come to King Jesus and say, I'm switching sides. I'm going to serve you for eternity no matter what. When you come out for prayer, tell it to the person out the front that that's what you would like prayer for and we'd love to help you make that step. Oh, can I just finish with one really simple question? So, what should I do? Like, 
What do we do with all that? If you've walked in here for the first time and you don't even know you're with Jesus, if you've been a Christian forever and you're not quite sure what you do with all that, can I finish with the words that Paul uses to the Christians at Colossae just a few verses earlier in um, Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7. This is what to do. So then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, what do you do? Continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Keep going. Don't leave the cross behind. The cross is there for your everyday life as a Christian. Don't just slip into a relationship with Jesus that is comfortable. Don't go chasing the next spiritual experience. Don't ever lose sight of the magnificent victory that Jesus has won for you on the cross. Jesus gave up everything for you. Are you prepared to give up everything for him? Can you stand so I can pray for you all? Lord Jesus, we praise you for that mighty victory on that cross and in your resurrection. We confess to you that sometimes we lose sight of it and we just want to move on to other things. But Lord, I want to pray for each person in this building right now that whether they've been a Christian for some time or whether they're just asking spiritual questions or whether this is the first time they've heard this that for each one of us you'll take us back to the majesty of that cross that we will experience the freedom that you brought us on that day and that we'll never leave that behind to search for other things. But your gospel will be our foundation every single moment of our life. Father, thank you that you brought us to eternal life through the death of your son. And thank you that every day you sustain us through that same death. Amen.